Listening to Open Up the Wall, Revelations of a Renovation Contractor. Now, this is what they call a quote, inspirational memoir. It's about my career change from award-winning actor to the owner of my own construction company. It's definitely a memoir, and throughout the 14 episodes of this podcast, you're going to meet some wonderful characters on both sides of the tool belt. This podcast is an edited version of the 27-chapter book of the same title. And it's available in e-form or hard copy. You can find out more about the book and about me, the author, Jeff Bowes, on my website, www.openupthewall.com. Feel free to leave any questions or comments you may have. I'd love to hear from you. Now, in episode four, Greg gave me a job working with Stan on a home renovation. I made a big mistake, which inconvenienced the lady of the house somewhat... But from that, I learned that the home renovator works as much with people as with his tools, and both are vital skills necessary to keep the walls from flying up. So, let's get on with it. Episode 5, A Poor Choice. My truck was popular. All of the other guys had vans, which was where they kept their tools. If I kept my tools in the back of my truck, they would, of course, get stolen, which meant that I had to unload and store my tools on site, which meant that my truck bed was usually empty, which meant that I was the guy who went and got stuff. After we put the steel beams in place, we had to frame in new walls in the ice house. So I was sent to get 2x6 lumber for the exterior walls and 2x4 lumber for the interior walls. Drilling through the steel, I had not only sprained my wrist but I had also given my thumb a good bang, and now the nail was coming off. So I stopped on my way to the lumberyard and picked up some band-aids. There was a really bad vibe at the lumberyard. The family was losing money, so they'd cut their own salaries in half, and their longtime employees were being let go one by one. Now there were final sale posters above the sparsely stocked aisles. Ronnie and the other guy behind the counter put on a brave face, but... I could see defeat in their body language. It was getting uncomfortable to be in this place now. I left the order desk and I went to pay Ronnie's mother, the cashier. She gave my visa card back and she said, That's that. Good luck to you, dear. I walked around the till and I hugged her. She always smelled of peppermint. Oh, she said, You're a sweetie. I don't know what I'm going to do without you guys coming around. She broke our embrace looked in my eyes, and said something in German, and then made the sign of the cross. Outside, there was a gusty wind blowing, and the bare trees made eerie sounds like at the beginning of a horror movie. Sawdust swirled in mini tornadoes across the gray pavement, crashing into stacks of lumber. Sheet metal banged against the roof. A figure lurched forward from behind a shed, pulling up his fly. It was the yard man, my least favorite one, a belligerent kid with tattooed knuckles and a diamond stud twinkling in his nose. He reached for my order paper, snatching it from my hand. Okay, how about you load the two-by-six pile and I'll carry the two-by-fours over to the truck, okay? I said. No answer. 
So I parked the truck beside the two-by-six pile. The kids started hurling eight-foot lengths of two-inch-by-six-inch lumber into my truck with a vengeance. I called to him, Hey, if one of those goes through my back window, you're going to be out about 400 bucks. I know what I'm doing. I crossed over to him and I said, Okay, stop. I will load these myself. You go get the two-by-fours and leave them beside the truck. And then the kid pushed me out of his way and I fell down. And because I had not put on a Band-Aid, when I hit the wood pile, my thumbnail tore completely off. I felt the pain that I imagined I should feel as I looked in horror at my gory thumb. I looked up and it seemed to me that the kid was smirking. If he was going to apologize, I didn't give him a chance. I was so intent on hurting him back. I stood up. I pulled him around by his coat. I took aim, and I punched the surly little prick right on his stud nose. He fell backwards against the side of the truck. And then, before my eyes, he turned into a young man that I had deliberately hurt. My anger disappeared, leaving me feeling ashamed of myself. I just punched one of the workforce's insignificant. Anybody with that level of anger deserves some compassion, not a punch in the head. I stood holding my bleeding thumb, watching him. He held both hands to his bleeding nose, watching me. And then suddenly, a gust of wind came up and a mini tornado carrying two identical empty Dorito packages swirled between us and went skyward. We watched them dance past the streetlights and out of sight, and then we looked at each other again. "'You okay?' I asked. "'You're going to get it, you motherfucker!' I was furious all over again. Grabbing him by the collar, I yanked him clear of my truck. "'Get the fuck away from my truck,' I said. "'I don't want you bleeding on my truck.' I got in and I drove back to the office. I slipped past Ronnie's mum and I went to the order desk and I told Ronnie what had happened. When he saw my bloody thumb, both hands went to his crotch and he said, buka, 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 buka. Uh, what did you say? I asked. Ronnie put both hands back on the counter. Nothing. It's too weird to go into, but I feel other people's pain in my crotch. Ronnie was mainly concerned about any damage to my truck. We went back to the yard and he helped me finish loading. He said nothing to the kid who was pacing furiously close by. I better let him cool off some more, said Ronnie. Crazier than a shithouse rat, that one. Really pissed off about being laid off. Ronnie didn't have to concern himself with customer relations anymore, so he just said, see ya, and then turned his back to me, unzipped his fly, and peed into the storm drain. A feeling like I could throw up was coming on strong as I accelerated out of that unfortunate place. So many of life's unlucky find their way into manual labor. Lucky for them will be a steady job lifting and carrying. They'll be lucky if they ever figure out why they're so angry all the time because they will get laid off and they'll get fired a lot. They'll get used to being treated with disrespect. When you know what to look for, you can see it. The defeat in their body language as they trudge dirty and tired to the subway. So much rage in their furrowed brows as they stand smoking at bus stops. And I just punched one. No one knew about this incident for years. My behavior was so upsetting to me that I kept it to myself. 
well-brought-up white guys with good teeth and university degrees do not go around contributing to the existential angst of the unskilled laborer. In the years that followed, whenever I hired casual labor, what Lord Elmer Lytton dared to call the great unwashed, I made a point of paying framers, helpers, and drywallers well above the minimum wage, and I never raised my voice to them. At least there was some upside to acting like a rich white prick that day. My thumb had grown another nail by the time Greg laid me off from the house in front of the ice house. Stan had given me a lot to do, and under his guidance I'd patched the walls, installed the doors, assembled the Ikea kitchen, wrestled all the made-in-China light fixtures into place, and installed the baseboards and door trim. I paid close attention to the electricians and the plumbers, and I absorbed all that I could. Whenever possible, I eavesdropped on the client-contractor conversations, and I learned the absolute necessity for constant communication. See, there's an order and a flow to doing a full-house renovation, and I just traveled through it from start to finish, at times being trusted to take initiative and get things done on my own. I had definitely learned from the best, and I was grateful for the feeling of accomplishment that came with this new life full of daily surprises and challenges. Except that two weeks later, I was out of work. A full 34 days went by before I got another call. At some point in my own hiatus, it occurred to me that I could be doing some of this stuff on my own. I need to drum up business, I said to Dixie. I need clients of my own. Ah, so you want to move from having a job to having a career. Uh, yeah. You cool with that? Yeah. But no ponytail, no tattoos, and watch your language in front of the kids. It ended up being a moot discussion. I couldn't find any work. Thank God Greg called. I got an addition up the freeway, Greg said. You in? Absolutely. Stan will be there, but you'll be working with Ken. Now, Ken's a master carpenter. He's he's absolute genius, so you're going to learn a lot. The thing is, he takes some getting used to, so whatever you do, don't piss him off, because he can be dangerous. Stan picked me up in his beat-up van, affectionately called Old Blue, and we drove to the subway to pick up Ken. On the corner... Smoking furiously, it was a man in a tank top, cutoffs, and work boots. He stood about five foot four with a slight but muscular build and a mullet. That's him, said Stan. You better get in the back. I clambered into the back and sat on the floor with the tools while Ken got in the passenger seat. He gave me a scowl but said nothing. There was a sweaty, boozy smell to him. Good to see you, Ken, said Stan. How you been? Been in rehab. I waited for a chance to introduce myself, but Ken rolled out the drawings and began to complain about the roof design. From my vantage point on the floor in the back, I could see that Ken's shoulders bore the scars of bad adolescent acne. He held the drawings like he was reading a newspaper, and I saw that his left forearm was covered with many small scars from wrist to elbow. Further up his arm was tattooed the word mayhem. On his belt was a large folding knife in a leather pouch. Once he looked back at me, but he didn't speak. 
He sighed constantly, and on the exhale would say, It's all good. We pulled up to a real live construction site. Beside a mid-sized bungalow was a vast new concrete block formation. And surrounding it were ladders and scaffolds and stacks of lumber, a cement mixer. I couldn't believe that I was actually going to build a house from the ground up. Look at me, Ma. I'm one of those common tradesmen you warned me about. We all gathered around the drawings. Page one made sense. It was easy to see the addition beside the existing house. Page two showed how the new roof attached to the old roof. But when Stan and Ken started discussing the slope and the pitch, pointing to strange symbols on the drawings, I was lost. I just kept my mouth shut and nodded my way through pages three to seven. Finally, Stan said, Let's get to it. Okay, I said. What do you want me to do? I don't know. What can you do? snorted Ken. I mean... You look all clean cut, and you can't read drawings, and your hands are really smooth, so what are you here for? Well, I've done a lot of interior framing, so I won't slow you down if that's what you're worried about, I said firmly. This is house framing. You don't even have a framing hammer. Uh, Ken, said Stan. Jeff was abandoned at birth, so you have to give him a break. Be nice, okay? Ken's eyes darted between us. What? he shouted. What the fuck? What the fuck are you talking about? Ken then closed his eyes, inhaled slowly through his nose, exhaled and sighed. It's all good. Then he suddenly opened his eyes and said, Fuck it! I don't want to know! Let's do this! We were going to build the walls for the first floor, working from the outside walls in to the partition walls for all the rooms. The walls got assembled on the floor with studs spaced every 16 inches, except where there was a door or a window. Then the wall got covered in plywood and lifted into position. This was done by resting the top of the wall onto the steel toe of our boot, which was just high enough off the ground to get a good grip. Then, on the count of three, it was lifted into place right at the edge of the floor and smacked into position by framing hammers on either side. Then the claw end of the framing hammer was swung into one of the studs at about head height, just to get a grip on the wall and to keep it from toppling over the edge until it could be securely braced. Ken told me the story of the time the wind got a wall, and it was teetering on its way to the parking lot below, when he saved the day by whacking the claw of his hammer into the center stud and pulling the wall upright again. If I'd have had your hammer... It'd have been a fucking disaster. You can't get lackadaisical when it comes to the right tool for the job. So, on my way home that night, I went to Home Depot to buy a framing hammer. They're longer and heavier than your normal hammer. They're designed so that its weight does the work, not your arm. They have a long, almost straight claw for biting into the wood. And the head is fatter than a standard hammer, with a waffle texture for nailing accuracy. Who thinks this stuff up, I wondered to myself, as I pondered the evolution of the hammer. This is the latest thing, said Tony, the guy in the Home Depot apron with the unfortunate title of Tool Associate. He showed me a lethal-looking hammer with a slight curve on the bottom part of the handle. You can swing this bitch all day and not get tired because of its ergonomically designed handle. Well, it feels good, I said. You sold me. 
Tony looked around before he spoke, as if he had a secret to share. Here's the thing. You have to get used to the different center of gravity with this hammer, so take some time and give it a few practice swings before you get down to business. Ken said the curve made my new hammer look gay. Then he quickly corrected himself. I can't say that no more, because my kids say it's bad, and I'm not prejudiced. But this is the kind of legal shit that my wife can use against me to get back custody of the kids, the lazy witch. Then a big breath. It's all good. And then again. It's all good. He sniffed hard and wiped his eyes. Then he said, let me see. So I handed him my hammer, warning him about balance and how the tool associate had said to take a few practice swings. Oh, for God's sake, said Stan. It's not a golf club. We'd left a couple of walls lying on the deck for the night. Now we began to lift the first one into position. I pulled my new hammer out of my tool belt, and aiming the claw side at a spot above my head, I swung the hammer back right into the middle of my forehead, knocking myself onto the deck. Ken doubled over with laughter. The wall, Stan cried. I jumped up and I sank the claws into the stud. Ken did the same and we pulled the wall back from the brink. But Ken was laughing so hard that the wall started coming back on top of us. Stan shouted, put it back down. And we lowered it onto the deck. Oh, fuck, that was the funniest fucking thing I've ever fucking seen, screamed Ken. I wish I could fucking see it again in fucking slow-mo. Oh, fuck, that was so fucking funny. You have no fucking idea how fucking funny. Oh, my fucking Jesus, how fucking funny was that, eh? Finally, a happy reaction from Ken. It made me laugh with him. That such a Jeffrey move could take him out of his resident anger for even a moment was worth the pain in my head. Ken kept laughing long past the appropriate amount of time. And then he said, And you want to leave me alone with this guy? A chill went through me, and I turned to Stan. What's he saying, Stan? I asked. Greg wants me back at the ice house for a few days, so Ken can ride with you, and you guys can get the interior walls up, and then do the rafters. And you look after all the delivery and the paperwork, said Ken. I'm not too good in the reading department. He laughed an embarrassed, apologetic laugh, and then swung onto a ladder and got back to work. I looked hard at Stan. Sorry, he said. I just found out. Just don't piss him off. You'll be fine. Ken was pissed off with me anyway, just for being born luckier than he was. He tolerated me because it was clear to him that I was in awe of his skill. And over the next few days, I did learn an astonishing amount from Ken. I watched his efficiency with tools and his economy of movement on the deck. He had to explain a few things to me because not only was I doing things I'd never done before, but there were also products that I'd never seen before, like roof trusses and engineered timber. Ken's instructions always started like this. Not like that, you fucking... But before his castigation was completed, he would stop himself, take a deep breath and sigh... It's all good. Then he would show me the right way to do whatever I had been doing wrong. But the sighing mantra thing was starting to irritate me, so I told him that if he felt more comfortable yelling at me than sighing at me, I was fine with that. And then I imitated his, It's all good. That was a big mistake. 
Ken went ballistic, shouting at me inches from my face. I'm supposed to never stop doing that. This is anger management, you fuck. You motherfucking fuck. It's part of fucking rehab. I have to notice every time I'm angry and I have to focus on the good. You get it, you fuck. I, I had no idea. I apologize. What, what do you mean, the good? I don't know, like, just like normal good, I guess. That sort of bullshit. Can you be more specific? What do you mean, Pacific? Never mind. The heat was intense that summer. We were doing eight bottle days. That means we could drink eight bottles of water before we had to pee. I knew nothing about heat stroke, its signs or its symptoms, but it was clear to me that if anybody was vulnerable to its effect, we were. I was concerned because we were putting the roof rafters on now, and it seemed pretty dangerous walking along a six-inch board three stories up with no shade. I, I just didn't know if this was normal working conditions for framers. But Ken wasn't complaining, so I just got on with it. By mid-morning, I was getting weary lifting the 12-foot-long timbers into place. By lunchtime, I was having trouble getting the 8-foot timbers into place. We came down the ladders into the blessed shade, and I glugged a bottle of water, and I told Ken that I wouldn't last working through the heat of the day until 5 o'clock. Then you'll get fired. I think this is a safety issue now, Ken. We are both getting weak. We haven't finished the roof. We'll get fired. Ken, you're not going to get fired for taking this kind of heat seriously. Besides, it's a bigger hassle for Greg if you get killed on the job. Ken was frantic. He pleaded with me. We have to finish. I need this job. Look, we'll, we'll take it nice and slow, okay? Even though I knew that his fear of getting fired was utterly irrational, his crazed certainty got me worrying that he might know something that I didn't. With mixed feelings, I relented. I was reluctant to make the call to Greg and say that we were too hot to work because I just didn't know the procedure for this type of situation. But it seemed to me that only an idiot would work two stories up on a six-inch walkway in the middle of a heat wave. We doused ourselves in water and we climbed back onto the roof. Our progress was in slow motion. After an hour and ten minutes, I pulled out my tape measure, just as I had been doing all day, but this time, I couldn't remember what I was doing. Was I measuring for a wall, a window, a roof? I couldn't remember. That was it. I called Ken to get off the roof. I was expecting an argument, but he carefully walked to the ladder and started down, fretting all the way. We are so fucking fired. Jesus Christ, what am I going to do now? Greg is going to be so fucking mad when he hears we quit early. Oh, fuck, what am I going to do? We're so fucking fired. Fuck. My heart went out to him until he shook his mullet, spraying me with sweat. Jesus, Ken, calm down. Greg's not going to fire you. Listen, you're a valuable asset to him. And I know he doesn't want you to risk your life up there. Anyway, listen, it was my call to quit early, so you can say that you had to quit too, because I'm your only ride back to town, okay? Oh, fuck, I don't know, fuck, it's all so fucked up now, the fucking heat, fucking sun. Why me? Fuck. And then, it's all good. The route home down the freeway went past a series of subdivisions under construction. I pointed out to Ken that there was not one framer to be seen on any of the roofs in that half-finished subdivision. 
See, Ken? It's even too hot for those guys. They all got called down off the roof. Ken leaned forward, rocking. Thank God. Oh, thank God. After a bit, he sat upright, leaving a sweaty imprint of his forehead on my dashboard. And what about you? He said. You could still get fired because it was your decision, right? I mean, you made the call. I had to come with you because you're my ride home. I mean, like, what else could I do, right? Ken's hand-to-mouth existence made this crazy fear of getting fired understandable. House framing doesn't pay well at all, and it's usually volume work, like subdivisions. The worst part about the job is the pressure to work fast, because at the end of the week, the slowest guy will get fired. This would account for Ken's anger towards me when I did novice things that slowed down his productivity. It would explain how he could have no understanding of his value as a skilled tradesman. He was infected with a low-grade fear that at any time he could be out of work and very soon after that, out of food. We drove in silence past little cul-de-sacs with luxury homes under construction. The irony of the situation did not escape me. All these homes were being built by people who would never own a home in their lives. All of the craftsmen who built these buildings from the ground up, all the kens in all the trades, from framers to masons to tilers, cabinet makers, all with their unique skills, would never be acknowledged as anything more than those worker types that we don't think much of. I drove Ken to the subway to go back to God knows where. Nothing like a fucking Friday, eh? Feel so fucking free, eh? Sure do. It's all good. (laughs) Ah, very funny. Thanks for the ride. You're welcome. See you Monday. Yeah, and don't you get too drunk this weekend, because you're going to have to haul some serious ass next week, buddy. You got a lot of time to make up for, because you quit early today, you pussy. I was grateful for two days away from Ken. In spite of all that he was teaching me, his anger and his shame made him say such stupid, irrational things that by the end of the week I was worn out trying to make sense of him. My thoughts turned to a hot shower and a cold beer. Together. Stan had turned me on to taking a beer into the shower. All my life I had showered in the morning when I woke up. The stumbling, dozy duty was something to be hurried through before I could get some coffee. Now I look forward to the satisfying ritual of standing in the shower after work and watching my day dissolve into soapy gray water and stream off me. I sniffed the steamy air until the smell of sweat and sawdust was replaced by the scent of soap and shampoo. And then to twist the cap off a cold beer and savor the new aroma, feeling the cold brew in my hand and the hot shower on my aching shoulders— was to enter a brief state of bliss. Just me drinking beer alone with only the sound of the water. It was a brief, beautiful time for mind and body to come together again. By now, though, the excitement of being on a real construction site was gone. Framing was hard work, but worse, it was repetitive work. And worse than that, it was a kind of repetitive work where I couldn't afford to let my mind wander. Exact measurements and precise cutting in the intense heat required considerable focus. I made a point of studying the drawings on my lunch breaks, and by the time we got to framing the second floor, I was up to speed. Not Ken's speed, but I kept my end up. I had accepted that Ken did not look on me as his co-worker, but as his bitch. 
I was happy with this relationship as long as I kept learning about framing and I put up with his oblique insults. You should be working indoors, you know, maybe painting or something like that because you're destined to fucking kill yourself up here. His questions to me were sometimes topics for discussion, sometimes unanswerable. You got your high school, right? So do you think people who don't have it look up to you? Like, do you think they're better than you? How come you have a truck and I don't, and I'm a better carpenter than you? Two weeks later, I dropped Ken and his oppressive pain and anger at the subway for the last time. We each said bye, nothing more. We never saw each other again. It's all good. 